The tremendously good news is that I was able to show that despite having major depression, I was still able to accomplish all of this. And I'm not done yet. Like Ray Lewis said, you know, I didn't come this far just to come this far. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. As the former president of the Ontario Bar Association, Law Society medalist, and an exemplary career in law, Orlando De Silva enters 2019 well-positioned as he seeks election for bencher with the Law Society of Ontario. In this episode of Of Counsel, Orlando takes us on his remarkable path into law. A son of a welder turned into Bay Street phenom, a rising star turned to political aspirations, from depression and then to the brink of death when he attempted to take his own life at the age of 40. A lot has changed since then. Now, Orlando is a champion for lawyers facing mental health issues. Through his influence, intelligence and determination, Orlando has brought the dark recesses of depression into the daylight to expose a reality that none of us are alone facing these issues in this grueling career. Ultimately, Orlando's story is one of optimism, hope, and determination, one that will hopefully carry on as he moves into the next stage of his career if elected bencher for the Law Society. This episode of Counsel is once again brought to you by our our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis is excited to announce a new product offered called LexisNexis Litigation Advantage. Litigation Advantage is a powerful combination of deep analytical content and practical guidance for one great price. The Litigation Advantage includes Lexis Advanced Quick Law Civil Litigation Essentials and your choice of the Lexis Practice Advisor Litigation and Dispute Resolution or Personal Injury Module. For more information on this product and how you can get a free trial, visit LexisNexis.ca slash litigation advantage. Once again, that's LexisNexis.ca slash litigation advantage. Now, let's take you to our episode with Orlando Da Silva on this episode of Of Counsel. So first of all, um, welcome to our podcast, Orlando. Thank you very much. Uh, today I'm here uh, with Orlando De Silva. It's a real pleasure uh, to have someone uh, like you on the podcast to talk about the issues that are central to you. Going back a little bit, you were called to the bar in 1994. Since then, you've carved out a really impressive career with many notable accomplishments, eclectic experiences. So I, I, I'm very excited to see how that has evolved for you and and what that means because you offer a very unique perspective that I think few in the profession do and that it come one who came very strongly from Bay Street and now working with the Crown's office uh, and a lot of other interesting issues and accolades along the way. So as I understand things right, you started uh, on Bay Street with uh, Borden Ladner Gervais? 
That's right, yeah. And that was, I guess you started articling there and then eventually worked your way? I articled at Macmillan Bench. And oh, okay. then when I was doing the bar admission course, which I had back in 1993, 94, I got hired at uh, Borden and Ladner, or Borden and Elliott at the time, and stayed there until uh, 2005 when I moved to the government. And then, as I understand, during uh, your time on Bay Street, you became the president of the Ontario Bar Association? No, that actually came sometime uh, after, uh, in fact, uh, almost nine years later. Oh, wow. So I was in the government for uh, nine years and uh, then became president in 2014, 2015. Fantastic. And and what... um, you know, a lot of um, the way people know you is your strong advocacy in mental health issues facing us as lawyers. And I want to uh, talk a lot about that. Um, but let's start from the beginning. How did you get into law? Why this profession? Well, you know, I came from a working class family. My father was a welder. Uh, my uncles were bricklayers and uh, assembly line workers. And um, they teased me a lot when I was growing up because I wasn't good with my hands. Um, and so they, my father in particular, stressed about what I was going to do with myself uh, as I grew older. And I stressed about it as well. Through elementary school, I noticed some, you know, some ability to write um, and and to speak publicly it may not be obvious right now but <laughs> <laughs> i have i was able to to uh, speak publicly and do it quite well so i won an award in grade six i won an award in grade eight for public speaking and and uh, it was a surprise to many in fact my grade six teacher ordered a recount uh, she was so surprised but uh, then again, in grade 11, um, teachers started to recruit me for the debating team. And it's, it occurred to me that if I have some ability in, in writing and speaking, that my career should somehow land in, in one of those two areas. And I narrowed it down to politics or law. And from that point forward, grade 11 forward, it was really the first step was law, and if there was another step in politics, it would come later. Incidentally, I, I tried that and came back to law. But um, from that point order, over uh, forward, pardon me, the uh, marks improved. I felt some purpose in life, and uh, from the age of 17 on, there was nothing else I wanted to do. There was never a plan B, you know. What do you think some of the most valuable things uh, you learn coming from, you know, as you say, a blue-collar uh, working family with uh, almost uh, lawyers look at with perhaps some sort of ridicule and thinking you're not, you know, why would you want to go and do that? Why wouldn't you want to work? Is there is there something that you've taken from that that you think is uh, perhaps unique to your perspective now in, in the law? Well, I think one thing I've taken... Uh, you know, after the initial culture shock of uh, U of T law school, and you know, the first time I met a lawyer was when I went to law school, um, and then the cultural shock at at, at Bay Street, uh, you know, I did not feel like I belonged at all. But the thing I brought with me from a working class background is respect for everybody. So I, I treat everybody the same way. I come from a place of respect for you. Um, if you're, a, you know, if you're a hard worker, no matter what area of life you engage that work in, and um, it, I find that that helps me in my practice because um, I get that respect back. 
and uh, appreciation back. And, and um, it's been uh, one way that I've been rewarded um, in my life. What does a typical day look like for you now as a, a crown prosecutor specializing in high-level frauds? Well, the day there's no two days that are the same. There's one thing I like about what I do, um, and uh, and why, in fact, I switched from private to public sector, from uh, you know civil litigation to criminal litigation, is to keep the uh, interest uh, at a high level. Uh, typical day today, uh, you know, as a prosecutor, could involve you know. Uh, hearing about an investigation that's coming through the works, uh, knowing that we have to give some advice on some aspect of what the police are doing, knowing that that's going to land on our desk as something we're going to prosecute. Uh, it's something new that uh, the Ontario government announced back last, um, I think it was a year ago, last December. We're going to be under the same roof in a covert location with the police. And uh, um, I think that that's going to really help us prosecute the Briex type cases, the Enron type cases, the Sinoforest type cases, with um, the expertise uh, in all facets of uh, of uh, the, the elements of society and the economy that fraud touches on. So, the uh, there's no two days that are the same, and and that's the bottom line, and why I, I one of the reasons I like it. The other thing is is you feel more directly. The good that you do for society, you know, uh, if you can help create a safe marketplace and safe economy, um, uh, if you can help put a stranglehold on the funds that funnel through to organized crime or terrorism or arms purchases for who knows what, um, I you know I feel good about the kind of job I do. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: if if a law student came to you. You know, early on in their their days, and and said, Orlando, I know you've done both Bay Street at a high level, and you've also done uh, public um, work at a very high level. What advice would you give to that student? What considerations would they want uh, to know, or what what advice would they want to know before entering into either? It's difficult. I could answer in part by saying, you know, is there anything that I did that I would change? Sure. You know. Or um, here's the advantages of Bay Street and pros and cons, and here's the pros and cons of the public service, and you make your choice, right? I like what I did. In Bay Street, I learned from the best trial lawyers in the country how to do a trial. I learned what excellent legal service looks like. I know the effort that you have to put in to reach that level. And I know the difference between excellence and perfection and how perfection is unachievable and not worth pursuing, but excellence is. And I like having that basket of skills and knowledge that I could take to the public sector and say, you know, for those who haven't grown up in uh, under the um, mentorship of the best trial lawyers in the country, necessarily, to say this is what we ought to be doing in the public sector. Let's staff up a file so we can accomplish this. In the public sector, um, there's so much that it offers that it just overwhelms the experience that you can get on Bay Street. You know, for example, I, you know, you, you talk to a Bay Street litigator, and one of the themes you will always seem to hear is the vanishing about the vanishing trial. 
Now, as a criminal defense lawyer, it's not an issue for you. But if you're in civil litigation, it's a real issue. You're not getting to court. Big file for me when I was at uh, the firm would maybe be $20 million. When I moved to the government, you know, within a matter of weeks, two, several things were happening, but a big file then suddenly was a billion dollars, yeah. right? And be, by the time I left civil, it was $15 billion, and then I went into criminal. Uh, but the other thing that was happening, apart from simply dollar value of files, was was I started almost at the same time as the Caledonia civil unrest uh, was was underway, and uh, we were I was in, in one of the lead lawyers in charge of the civil litigation response to an injunction. And one of the overriding concerns is to conduct this litigation in a way that doesn't result in bloodshed. Literally. Literally, you know, because uh, Ipperwash was still fresh in our mind and will always be. Oka was fresh in our mind. That kind of consideration doesn't come into play to the same extent, if at all, in private practice. Mm -hmm. So I'd say to that person, you know, what kind of life do you want? What kind of career do you want? You know, for me, the public sector is a much more rewarding career in terms of the work you get, the effect you have, and the pride you take with you when you go home at the end of the day than anything I've done. And I'm not going to speak for anyone else in the private sector, but anything that I've done in the private sector. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the kinds of files I've had uh, so far... Uh, in the public sector, many would call career cappers in the private sector. Career cappers in the public sector is routine. Mm. You know, you get the excellent, excellent work. You don't get the financial rewards, but you're rewarded in so many other ways. So I would encourage anyone to go for that. Um, but I liked the training I got and, 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 you know, I, I learned how to do a trial from uh, the Honorable Frank Newbold, you know, when he was uh, a trial lawyer. And uh, he was uh, by far, I think, the best trial lawyer I've ever seen in action. And if I could just emulate some of that, then I feel good about what I accomplish in court. Let me ask you in a macro sense and briefly, what lesson or lessons could Bay Street learn from public and what lessons could public learn from Bay Street? It's a tough question. I think the public sector uh, uh, could learn how to staff up a file the way Bay Street does. Of course, it comes down to a question of resources, but you know, there's a vulnerability to brute force type litigation. You know, you see an insolvency uh, uh, type of litigation where on short notice you get uh, huge volumes of materials returnable within 24 or 48 hours. Um, you know, that disrupts the public sector alignment of lawyers and files quite a bit to respond to that adequately. And, and I think we could learn from, from Bay Street on how to, to respond to that properly. I think Bay Street could learn, uh, first that the, the lawyers that work for the government are as good and as smart and as capable as anyone on, on, uh, on Bay Street. Um, and that they handle files that are much larger and they're much more advanced than someone of the same year of call 
uh, in on Bay Street. So uh, it, there's they have uh, a, they take the risk of underestimating the person that they're up against, and uh, I, I've seen that quite a bit. And uh, you to know, your advantage, to, to my advantage, the That's more right. they do that, the better for me, right? But but also, um, you know, we we have fewer lawyers than they do often on big cases, but handle them just as well. So they could learn. Uh, efficiencies to the benefit of their clients from public uh, government lawyers. I'm going to return to that because I know in part uh, part of the issue that you're uh, running on as Bencher is about access to justice and means to deliver that. But before we do, I just want to uh, ask a few more questions about this um, dichotomy because you have such a unique perspective. Um, you obviously performed very well on Bay Street. You made partner but you've also performed exceptionally well in the public sector, and you were awarded the OBA's Public Sector Lawyers um, Award uh, called the Tom Marshall Award of Excellence. So my question to you is this. I'm going to assume that the direction to success on Bay Street and public is very different. First of all, is that true? And secondly, how does one advance in public? Because Bay Street seems pretty obvious, build a lot of money and, and talk to the right people. But is, how, how does one advance in public? I think there's one common element. You know, there are there is a distinction in private practice, as you mentioned. There's a sort of profitability matrix in how you perform. Mm-hmm. Underlying that is excellent service. I think that excellent service helps you in the public sector as well. You know, people trust your judgment, your skill, um, and that helps tremendously when you do the number one most difficult thing to do in the public sector, and that is to build consensus when you're getting instruction. Mm-hmm. People often think it's odd that government lawyers talk about their clients when it's the crown, really. And you'll hear people say the crown is indivisible, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, the reality is if you're in civil, this doesn't happen in criminal that, that I've seen, but in civil, there is, uh, you know, often an issue that affects, like, for example, I did indigenous litigation. It can affect mining. It can, uh, it can affect northern development. It, it can relate to agriculture, um, their natural resources. All of these have their own ministries and perspectives and constituents and interests, and they have to come to the table and agree on what you want to do in any particular piece of lit- litigation, Expect, especially if we're talking about something that's a 50, $15 billion-plus risk. So you as a litigator, before you draft your factum or as it's a work in progress with a very tight deadline, have to get instructions from all of these ministries all the way up to the top. And there's not always agreement on what to do or what to say. Mm-hmm. So one of the toughest skills you acquire is how to do that well. And that comes down to you know having excellent uh, skills and judgment. Because then you can persuade people that when you're in court, you want to be able to say this because this is the winning argument. And if we win this, we all win. Right. I would say that's the primary difference. I want to talk with you about mental health advocacy. You're someone who's very candid um, about your own mental health and struggles you've had with depression during your tenure as a lawyer. You spoke publicly about this when you became the role of president of the Ontario Bar Association. And you were named uh, top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada by Canadian Lawyer Magazine in 2015 for your strong advocacy in this area. 
in May of 2016, you were awarded uh, a Law Society Medal for, quote, your outstanding service within the profession, whether in the area of practice, in the academic sphere, or in some other professional capacity, whether services in accordance with the highest ideals of the legal profession. And then that same year, you were nominated for Torontonian of the Year by CBC Metro Morning, and CAMH presented you with the biannual Transforming Lives Award. And then in 2017, the OBA presented you with its highest honour, the Distinguished Service Award. So first of all, why and how did you decide, or was it a decision, to become a, I think it's fair to say, a champion for lawyers' uh, mental health issues? Well, thank you for that. I... That was probably the hardest decision I've ever made. Um, I um, suffered from and continue to suffer from major, uh, severe major depression that's episodic, so every four or five years or so, starting from when I was nine years old. Now, I didn't know what it was then. At some point, I knew I was suffering and was diagnosed, but I kept it a secret because I didn't want, uh, you know, to be seen as a weak lawyer. Lawyers, litigators, criminals, several people bring their, their, uh, their hardest problems to you, problems they can't solve on their own, and they wouldn't bring them to you if they thought you were weak. So I kept silent about it, um, and that included uh, silence through a suicide attempt in 2008. You know, uh, I had just lost um, the election for uh, the Kitchener-Conestoga riding. I was running for the federal liberals, and uh, my marriage had broken down. I was living alone in a, a, a student apartment in the riding next to Conestoga College, and uh, I, I had, didn't really think about it at the time, but I had the uh, election really as a distraction for me um, from my failing marriage. Uh, and, and the distraction to me was that, you know, if I could only win, that would fill the void I'm, I'm feeling and that would help me recover from this episode. But I lost. All the signs came down. Volunteers dispersed the... The campaign office shut down. And one night I found, uh, I, you know, I just got my prescription filled for uh, my sleep medication and I had 180 tablets that was supposed to last me for six months. I took them all in one night with two bottles of uh, alcohol. And just before uh, I um, lost consciousness, I was able to, though I'd fallen on the floor, uh, my blackberry at the time rolled out in front of me and I couldn't see, I couldn't feel, but I was able to find the speed dial to my estranged wife and she called 911 and I spent the next six months in the hospital recovering. That was through Christmas, it was through Valentine's Day, it was through my mother's birthday, it was through Easter. And I didn't tell anyone in my family where I was, what I was doing. I said, you know, work is keeping me busy and all that. Work, I told them it was a physical problem. I couldn't come back. And uh, it was all the stigma I was so afraid of. You know, I, I wouldn't get the files I'm used to getting. I was afraid my family would love me less. And um, that my career from that point forward would take a downward trajectory. Mm -hmm. But clearly it hasn't. And so what motivated you to then change that momentum, uh, negative momentum, into such positive momentum? 
In a sense, when I was elected in 2012 as the second vice president of the OBA, it was about uh, four, three or four years after sort of the nadir, so to speak, you know, the down, the lowest of the low, and I felt like I had crawled back. And for the next two years, I tried to struggle with the, the thought of what am I going to do when I become president in 2014 that would be meaningful. You know, I think of Martin Luther King's quote, you know, the most urgent and pressing question of life is, what are you going to do for others? So I talked to people about, you know, making mental health my platform for my year. And the people who cared for me, who I trusted and talked to, all said, you know, don't do it. You'll hurt the reputation of the profession. You'll hurt the brand of the OBA. And, you know, all of the things you're afraid of are going to come to pass. I decided that I'm in the public sector now. I've proven myself over 22 years. Uh, they know I can do my job well and that I am strong. And then those risks, uh, I think, I can manage. And they're, they're mitigatable. So I decided uh, in August 2014 to speak to the press and say, you know, they always have an introductory meeting. Um, I think Law Times uh, reported that I was the new president and this is what I'm going to make it my year about. That was picked up by the Toronto Star and published on the first page on September the 2nd, I think, 2014. To I think their circulation at the time was 800,000. And that's how my family found out. Wow. And all of my colleagues and my daughter, you know, and, and, and so there, once you come out like that, there's, there's no coming back. So the good news, the tremendously good news is that I was able to show that despite having major depression, I was still able to accomplish all of this. And I'm not done yet. Like Ray Lewis said, you know, I didn't come this far just to come this far. Mm -hmm. Right. And that led to speaking invitations, et cetera. I've now spoken about it over 200 times across the country and was told that the, it's generated over 6 million media impressions. And uh, I'm starting a law school tour on February the 25th. It's taking me from UVic uh, to Fredericton, and hopefully soon I'll find out about Halifax. And, and um, you know, I just find that so rewarding. If I could only balance it well with my work and my family life, well, I'll hit the jackpot. But that's a work in progress. Well, it's. I think anyone listening to this and anyone who knows your accomplishments um, understands that the question you put, um, the most pressing issue of helping others, has clearly been answered, at least in part, because you say you're not finished yet. Th that's really um, nice to hear. It's... it's uh, I think it gives a lot of people optimism. But what about people, lawyers in particular, who are struggling with their own mental health and are concerned that coming out, like you say, might come across as them being weak or might um, get them fired? Uh, then I tell them, don't come out to your employer. You know, like the coming out doesn't... I wouldn't recommend the Toronto Star approach. <laughs> you know, like all I want to do is make the conversation easier so that you can tell somebody if you're suffering and struggling. And by somebody, I mean your spouse, your best friend, a coworker, somebody you trust. 
because the good news is that if you seek help, and so many don't, like I think the, it's, it's something like two-thirds to 75% don't seek help. People who come out uh, lose 42% of their friends immediately. They, those, these friends say they won't socialize with someone, a close friend they know has a serious mental illness. So, you know, what I'm saying is I, I, wanted to make, I want to make it easier to talk about this stuff so that you can go and talk to someone you trust and get help. And the good news is that if you do that, 80% recover. And that's, it's a modest goal, I think. So the question of whether you talk to your employer or not is a product of or a function of the culture of your employer mm-hmm. and not just, you know, the firm or, or, or the, the company, but the immediate manager you report to and their boss and their boss's boss, knowing that people move around. It may be safe. It may not be safe. Uh, that's something that you have to evaluate and decide, but it's not necessary to recover from your from your um, condition. Well, the issue certainly uh, isn't going away anytime soon, despite the progress. And one article you you wrote that there's a an off-cited 1991 study at a John Hopkins University saying that lawyers are almost four times as likely to suffer from depression as the rest of society, and in the U.S. they rank fourth among professionals who take their own lives. Um, so, I mean, I appreciate that's 1991, and, and I feel from my perspective, particularly with your efforts, a lot of progress has been made um, with transparency and people feeling comfortable to get help and talk about it. Uh, but um, you're running for venture, and I know that this is one of the key issues to your platform. Where do we go from here? What would you like to see in your tenure uh, if elected? Well, when I was uh, OBA president, the Law Society had a task force, produced a report, and is doing some work uh, to uh, improve, um, reduce stigma, improve awareness. They have um, a, a new code that's under consideration, professional rules for their disciplinary tribunal that might make, if passed, um, some decisions about uh, disciplinary issues that arise out of mental health uh, problems, uh, confidential, which I think helps. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in re-energizing that process. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think it needs a champion. Um, and I, I'm seeing great work do, being done in British Columbia and other jurisdictions across the, the country. I think we just need to light a fire under this process here. But I want to think bigger. I want, like, we, you know, the Law Society is in a great position to have partnerships with other justice sector stakeholders to improve the mental wellness of anyone who participates in this. Sure. You know, and I'm talking about uh, people who are self-represented, you know, particularly in family law. You know, the Ontario Psychological Association wants to help us put uh, therapists and counselors in family courts to help people walk through the process and their feelings. If you can get through their feelings, you can get to a, to a, a result much better to help them with their stress. You know, I, I think that, uh, the, you know, there's a role for law schools in uh, preparing uh, students for the practice. Uh, I think there's a role for the government clearly in, uh, in helping to fund uh, and partner with, with us to make broadly the justice sector is something that is mentally healthy 
and, and well. And I think if you take the temperature down in the high conflict zone, you'll have less conflict and more resolution and better for all. And so I want to champion, I want to be part of that solution. I know the law society can't do it on its own, but I think we can partner with others. Yeah, what I can see, I mean, clearly there's a lot of um, good intentions and there's a lot of efforts being made, but they seem very disjointed. And that type of cohesion is something that uh, I personally have never thought about before because you see, for example, in criminal court, you see mental health court, but that mental health court doesn't talk to mental health wellness of lawyers. And they are kind of related, and, you know, I I like that comprehensive approach. I want to move into another area because... um, well, I want to talk about the venture election in a broader sense, because I know uh, obviously this issue is very important to you, but there's some other really great uh, aspects to your platform and, and why you're running. Uh, you um, announced um, very early your candidacy. In fact, I think it was the first person I noticed to announce that you're running for venture. So can I can you explain in very general terms, um, just for our listeners who aren't familiar, what is a venture and what's the importance of voting if you're a lawyer? I think to put it in most simple terms, a venture is like a director on a board of directors, uh, in this case the Law Society, which is the regulator of lawyer, the 55,000 lawyers and approximately 12,000, I believe, paralegals in Ontario. It's the governing body that sets the policy and, uh, and, and directs the operational side of the Law Society to implement the policy. It's important to, to vote because first, um, you know, the, the role of venture and convocation, fancy word for the board of directors, uh, is critical in the direction of the, the law society takes. But despite that importance, the turnout rate or the voting rate is somewhere between 20 and 30 percent um, if you look through the years. So uh, it, it's a non-voting electorate, and I'd like it to change. And I think it will change this year, especially amongst younger lawyers. They're much more engaged than they ever were. I really hope so, um, because, you know, I was um, uh, I had come across some stats the other day on this issue uh, from 2015, so this was just the last election. And um, what we see is, like you say, a very low turnout. I think it's at 34% roughly of, of elections. And that has seriously declined because back, I think it was about 20 years ago, it was upwards above 50, maybe even 60%. It was very high. And the other thing, uh, what we see too, is uh, the people who vote most are often, um, you know, where most of the complaints are directed towards in that it is out of touch, it's partners, it's Bay Street, but that, of course, is the highest turnout. So it's encouraging for you to um, say and to hear that you think that this is going to be a little bit different, this election. I I think so. Judging by the people that I hear from, and I don't mean simply the venture campaign, but the mental health advocacy over the last four or five years, I hear hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages from mostly young lawyers. You know, five years ago, there was almost nobody speaking about this issue, admitting that they suffer and are, we're also practicing. Right. You're seeing it more and more and more. I'm developing a speaker's bureau. But what surprises me, astonishes me to no end, is that the people that are filling the speaker's bureau are young lawyers and articling students. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones with the most to risk. They're not established and safe in their practice, yet they want to deliver something good for their profession. And for broader society. And if they're that motivated on that issue, 
I think you'll see they're going to be motivated on much broader issues like exclusivity, equality, diversity, and inclusivity. Uh, this whole question of you know tuition issues being a barrier to justice. They're motivated, I think, and I think they're going to come out through uh, you know podcasts like yours. They're engaging. They're engaging on social media. And um, we have a completely electronic uh, voting now. I, I think that's going to make a difference. Yeah, I hope so. And I also, for what it's worth, I, I think your, your platform is very aligned with that because obviously these issues talk to one another. You know, having crippling debt and having, you know, uh, low job prospects affects one's mental health. Um, and uh, I think someone like yourself who's a strong advocate is, is well needed in the law society. Um, I also want to talk to you about uh, one of the issues in your platform is um, pro bono work. Clearly, it means a lot to you, public sector work. Um, at the end of 2018, I'm sure you're aware, there was a great concern among the bar that pro bono Ontario's offices in Toronto and Ottawa would be closing down for financial reasons. So uh, what we saw, uh, many lawyers took to Twitter, very, very active um, lawyers out there. I think they deserve to be named uh, just because they did such a great job, including Aaron Durant, uh, Chris Horkins, um, Sean Bodden, Pam Rick, uh, Emily Lawrence, and Brianna Needham. And then we also saw a lot of judges getting involved, um, Justice Tom Cromwell, Justice O'Connor, uh, Justice McLaughlin, Vinny, Justice Gage, Justice Epstein, uh, Wheeler, and even the current uh, Chief Justice Wagner uh, were all very active. And I wonder... Um, have you touched into something that is symptomatic of our times with your strong platform for pro bono? And, and what does that mean in your sense? Like, what role do you see the law society playing in this? Well, first of all, I think my, I salute all of the people you've mentioned. You know, the good on them. We have pro bono still. It didn't close. But, you know, we can't carry on with the organization on, on some sort of happenstance uh, kind of fu funding, a need stable funding. We can all agree that it should continue. We all can all agree it does great work. But we can't seem to agree on who or who should pay for it or how it should be paid. And um, I think there'd be a considerable pushback if we simply said the law society should pay. Being OBA president, I've heard this a lot. We, we lawyers do a lot already that they don't charge for. They contribute a lot. They do a lot of pro bono that doesn't qualify formally through pro bono, you know, initiatives from their firms or activities or otherwise. But they do it because they think it's right, and they think, why is this access to justice issue as important as it is, placed only on our shoulders? It's a societal problem. You know, we should all come to the table and try to solve it. So much like, you know, improving wellness in the justice sector, you know, I think at convocation, if I were honored to be elected, I would like to advance partnerships with everyone who cares about pro bono to try to see if there's a funding formula that we can all be happy with. Mm -hmm. You know, and it doesn't have to be just dollar for dollar, but facilities. Can, can like the law practice program? Can we have good placements with pro bono Ontario? You know, sure. why not? You know, what, what about facilities? Uh, we have uh, law libraries that are barely, barely used. I know that the 
There are facilities at some uh, courts across Ontario. I don't know if they're all being used for this, but why not? Like, can we do something there? You know, uh, are there other associations and organizations outside of the legal community that that want to participate and have the means to do so? Let's explore that. Mm-hmm. You know, before we start slapping levies on, uh, particularly when we're talking about you know. Uh, slapping levies onto students who are already coming out with $100,000 in debt and don't know if they have a job to go to. Right. It sounds uh, to me what you're saying is, you know, clearly pro bono uh, is a very, very important thing in this province, and and lawyers, like you say, already do a lot of that. But I think, um, you know, what you're describing to me is, is more of an attitudinal shift and one that may seem overly lofty, but given your accomplishments already within mental health and the attitudinal shift that's happened there, um, clearly this is within reach if we all, you know, have that perspective. Well, I'd like to persuade people that it's, that it's in reach, and if I didn't think it was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't run. So uh, what about some of the other key issues? I mean, we could talk, I was, I was saying to you, uh, you know, earlier that we could have a whole podcast season just on venture issues but are there any other uh, i mean people can obviously visit um your website and they should uh it's orlando net. yes okay and that lays out all your platform and everything that you stand for and what you'd like to see um but before we move on are there any other key issues you'd really like to see happen within the law society well, I just wanted to touch on EDI briefly. Uh, you know, we have the statement of principles, which is all fair and good, but I, I want to see a, a, a diverse convocation. I think we will make uh, better uh, decisions as a body. I want to see younger people like yourself elected uh, as a bencher. I've noticed in, in fraud, working in fraud, that, that um, statistically, for statistics out of the United States, the more diverse uh, an inclusive and equal um, uh, corporation is, the less fraud there is. It just It's a better organization as a result of it. And, and I want that benefit at convocation and throughout the legal profession. I want to throw one issue at you directly because I feel that, like you say, if there's a, a, a catalyst behind uh, the movement towards younger lawyers voting, um, where, where do you see... To, uh, the law society's role in dealing with uh, overwhelming tuition. It, clearly, this isn't sustainable, and uh, we're on a path towards people having crippling debt. I don't think we can regulate tuition, you know, but that would be the wrong starting question, I think. is The question is, can we encourage uh, law schools to enter into transition training? Uh, it was tried before, and for some reason it failed some six, eight, maybe ten years ago. I'd like to bring that back on and say something like, if you, uh, U of T or Osgood or whatever, buy into a transition training program um, uh, that satisfies us, you're producing competent lawyers that are, will, that are able to practice law upon graduation, that all they need to do is pass the barrister and solicitor's exam and they can go. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can skip the cost of the LPP and the opportunity cost of the placement and articling and just go. You know, I think that would be attractive to students. That's one possibility. The other hand, uh, you know, if schools like that decide not to do it, 
There's an incentive to go to a lower tuition school where you can just practice law right out of the classroom, right Absolutely. as soon as you're done. Right. And, and the schools that don't buy into the program are going to feel some draw of students to these other schools. So I, I think there's some leverage and there's some reason to, to cooperate. Uh, we just have to lay that out and give it a try again. Well, again, I'd encourage everyone to visit your website because there's a lot more on it. We could spend hours talking about these important issues, but it's uh, orlandodasilva.net. And uh, I think the election date is April the 30th. I think that's right. But as far as I can recall, there are sort of weeks leading up that you can vote online, right? Yeah, but it's about two weeks when voting is open and then it closes, I think, 5 o'clock on the 30th. Okay, moving to a new area. What does a great day look like for Orlando da Silva? Great days are, are for, for me, if it's sunny, I don't care how <laughs> cold it is. You know, I, I, I set some goals and I'm productive and I accomplish them. You know, maybe uh, we have a few laughs at the office and I feel good about my colleagues because of it. And I go home and I get a, the big hug from my three daughters, my wife, and my pug goes crazy when I <laughs> walk through the door. That's a great day for me. What's your pug's name? Buster. <laughs> <laughs> Is that taken from the fraud division? <laughs> no, I think that's just a natural name for a pug, Buster. A question I often ask um, lawyers, particularly litigators, is, you know, we as lawyers uh, often have really bad days. And sometimes, you know, hearing from accomplished lawyers like yourself uh, that they're not alone, that people fail, they make mistakes, and they have to move on, um, how does one move on? How does one make a big mistake at work uh, or, or on a case and then pick themselves back up and say, okay, I've I, I got to keep going? Because to a lot of people, uh, I think particularly young lawyers, it feels a lot more devastating than what is actually going on. I, you know, I think it's one of the myths that uh, the establishment of the legal profession perpetuates that you know, they were born uh, brilliant and they've never made mistakes. And That's a myth? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you, you hear in some of the training courses, you've got, you know, to be prepared for trial, you have to master the rules of evidence. You have to master all the facts of your case. You have to know your documents inside. Oh, you know, on and on it goes. And I remember when I was a young lawyer thinking, I master the rules of evidence? Like, you know, how am I going to do that? Um, the fact is that every one of them have made mistakes. You know, the only one who doesn't make mistakes are those that don't try. It's like the second string quarterback never makes a mistake, but never makes a touchdown either. You know, you got to make mistakes. Nelson Mandela said, you know, I never lose. I only win or I learn. And experience to me, you know, good experience is really just making mistakes and learning from them. Now, if you can learn from other people's mistakes, all the better. <laughs> that you, you move on because you've learned, and you know next time after that bad feeling, you're never going to do it again, <laughs> and you're going to be better and better. But don't let it scare you out of the courtroom or whatever it is, the boardroom that you're practicing it in, because it's necessary for your development. Are there any um, maybe pastimes or habits or skills that you've learned over the years to try and achieve a better uh, harmony within the pressures of litigation and and just life itself um, I, I know at one point you had mentioned uh, about a 10-point scale um, in trying to 
uh, assess uh, sort of where you stand and, and, and maybe um, seeing how to deal with it? Yeah, there's a few things to unpack with that. Uh, first, uh, my, uh, my major depression doesn't affect my work. Mm-hmm. When it does, I know that I'm in serious trouble. It's the last thing to go, in other words. This 10-point scale that I have helps me gauge my mood uh, with the help of others who know the scale. And because I've been oversharing for quite a few years, a lot of people know the scale. Um, it tells me what I need to do uh, before it gets bad enough to affect work. So, you know, just very quickly, 10 would be the top, uh, the, a mood so good that, you know, frankly, I've never experienced that. Eight would be the best I've ever felt. Six is my dystymic normal. Dystymia is a chronic low-grade depression. So that's where I usually am. Five is the onset of problems. I start to lose interest in hobbies. Three is uh, where it might start affecting my concentration levels and I need someone to help me. If it falls below a three, then I can't get out of it on my own. Mm-hmm. And so my wife and I have developed a shorthand. They could, she asks almost when I walk in the door, what are you today? <laughs> or she could tell by the look on my face, yeah. you're a three, aren't you? And, and so in each of those uh, numbers, like if I'm at a five, I know that if I watch a good NFL football game, I'll be fine, you know. Yeah. If I'm, or I could play chess or I play the violin there or I read a book. There are things I can do to help me pull out. If I'm below a three, there are things my wife knows. She's got to drag me out of the house. I might, you know, re- really feel frustrated or irritated, but we both know that I'll feel better when I come back. Right. Or when I'm out there. And the same is true of my daughters and my closest friends. And because I'm open about my, uh, uh, my depression, I have a lot of people who are able to help me. I have an arsenal of friends, people who understand. Do you think that's one of the keys, is having people around you who can help you out? Absolutely. Moving to advocacy. You're a litigator, and so with litigators, I, I ask about litigation. So my question is, if you had an inscription on your desk that you read as you're about to make an argument uh, to remind you of a key technique or rule, what would it be? I think authenticity and vulnerability together are very powerful advocacy tools. You know, you, when you think of some of the best speeches uh, in modern history, they can be in broken English. There can be ums and ahs and stutters. But if it sounds like it's coming authentically from the heart, for example, you'll believe every word. It'll take you in. Mm -hmm. And if you can capture your own authenticity and deliver it in in a courtroom, I think that is the the single strongest uh, advocacy tool. And of course, it means you have to be an honest and credible uh, litigator and lawyer and a human being. Are there any rituals that you go through before you go to court? Is there a particular song you like to listen to or a particular breakfast you like to have? No, uh, because I I suffer from depression, uh, I sometimes have self-worth issues. Like, you know, I I have a negative narrative in my head. To counter that, I have a list of about 10 or 15 things that I've accomplished that I'm very proud of. So about a year and a half ago, I had the opportunity to cross-examine Dell and Millard in the context wow. of a robotham uh, order. 
uh, Millard, uh, I cross-examined Millard, his mother, his accountant, and his manager, all of them saying he's broke. And, and uh, they wanted the state to fund the Laura Babcock uh, murder trial. Now, there were 200 people in the courtroom. Justice Code was presiding. There was a group of groupies who were sort of flirting with Millard at the time. And I was feeling a little, you know, some butterflies at the whole prospect of this. Uh, because there were ramifications for losing that I didn't really want to contemplate. I took out that list of the 10, 15 things that I accomplished, and I quietly read it before I stood up and looked them in the eye and did my cross. And um, it worked beautifully. That's great. What a great, what a great um, motivational tool. So you, you literally have sort of accomplishments that you're proud of that you can look at when you're I think that's um, it's certainly a very unique thing, and I, I imagine you're going to find a lot of uh, lawyers in the province pulling out lists very shortly. I hope they do. <laughs> I hope they do. Okay, r- wrapping this up, Orlando, um, I want to talk to you about the evolution of law. question I often ask uh, our guests is, if you uh, had the power of, of the Attorney General or Chief Justice of the Supreme Court or the, or the Ontario Superior Court, is there one macro sweeping change you would like to see happen uh, for the betterment of the justice system? Yeah, I would like to see the justice system treated more like the health system is treated, you know, the same priority. I, you know, I'd like to see more courtrooms, more judges, more crowns, and I, you know, more civil um, uh, judges. The delays that we're seeing on the civil side because of cases like Jordan, where all the priority is in the criminal uh, uh, cases, means that they have to wait for years. You know, as soon as they're ready for trial, the trial date is are years down the road. You know, we need a justice system that helps solve these conflicts without them festering into bigger conflicts. And so, you know, I know it's... Politically, you don't win elections on justice issues, you know. There's only so much money that you can dole out. You can't tax everyone uh, to poverty. You know, so I, I'm sympathetic to uh, the political issues. But if I had unlimited power, king of the day sort of thing, that's what I would do. And I'd love to see what kind of benefits society would have if we could resolve our conflicts quickly and, and efficiently. One last question, and I think this is important to your venture election, um, which I wish you all the best of luck. Uh, what is something that you would like all the public to know about lawyers that you feel is perhaps misconstrued? That's a big question, but we are human beings and, and 99.9% of us are giving back to society in ways you can never imagine. You know, volunteering for boards, volunteering their time, doing the heavy lifting and all, you know, because they want to give back to society. They went into law to help the public. And I think you can see all of that very clearly if you go to your website. Again, it's orlandodasilva.net, and you can see all the amazing things that you've done over the course of your career. And if you're like me, you can follow you on Twitter at Orlando51860733. Right? Yes. All right. Thanks so much, Orlando. This has been a great interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.